Welcome to the Not Old Better Show. I'm Paul Vogelzang, and this is episode number 478. As part of our Smithsonian Associates Art of Living author interview series, today's show is very special. We're speaking today with author and museum curator Rebecca Roberts. Rebecca Roberts will be appearing at the Smithsonian Associates program entitled How the Suffragists Invented Washington Activism, October 6th, via Zoom. Check out our website for more details. Every time activists march down Pennsylvania Avenue, protest in Lafayette Square in Washington, D.C., or carry a sign to the White House, they are literally walking in the footsteps of the suffragists. Even the Black Lives Matter mural on 16th Street in Washington, D.C. uses one of their tactics. Get your message right in front of the president's face where he can't pretend to ignore it. Over 100 years ago, the suffragists knew how to exploit news coverage, recruit allies, and make a message go viral. And it worked. Starting with absolutely no power, they affected the single largest change to American democracy. Join authors Lucinda Robb and Rebecca Roberts at Smithsonian Associates October 6th via Zoom. And Rebecca Roberts is here with us today as we discuss how the strategies of the women's suffrage movement echo through today's activism, no matter the cause. Together at Smithsonian Associates, Rob and Roberts, and then Rebecca Roberts with us today, have written The Suffragist Playbook, Your Guide to Changing the World, designed for young readers to apply the lessons of the suffrage movement to their own goals today. We'll talk about the new book and much more with Rebecca Roberts today via internet phone. Rebecca Roberts, welcome back to the program. Happy to be here. It's good to be talking to you. I'm happy that you're here too. And I know our audience is going to be excited to hear from you. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your upcoming Smithsonian Associates presentation? And in particular, because we are all on Zoom these days a great deal, why don't you tell us how you're going to use Zoom to engage our audience? Sure. So um, I've got a new book that's sort of out. The ebook version is out. The hardcover and the audio book are coming out in October. And this is a book I wrote with um, my co-writer, Lucinda Robb. She's an old friend of mine. In fact, our mothers were friends, our grandmothers were friends. So it's nice to be able to continue several generations. Um, and we both have always been interested in women's history. I wrote a previous book about the suffrage movement. And we both sort of felt the lack of a history of the suffrage movement for young readers. But we also sort of felt like, eh, another history, that's not really what young readers want. So um, we wrote this book as a playbook for how to take the lessons from the suffrage movement and become an activist yourself. Um, And interestingly, you know, when we first started writing it, we thought we might have to convince young readers that they could be activists. We thought we might have to start by saying, like, you really can do this. Your voice really does matter. Uh, But in the time we were working on it between Greta and Malala and the Parkland kids and Black Lives Matter, there's so many activist young people, um, so many role models uh, for people even too young to vote to become politically active themselves that we no longer need to make that case. That case is made for us by a lot more talented voices. So um, our Smithsonian Associates program will be talking about sort of how the suffrage movement invented contemporary activism, how many tactics um, activists borrow uh, from the suffrage movement, probably without even knowing it. 
Um, and the nice thing about Zoom is so many of the pictures from the movement are fantastic. You know, they're, they're gorgeous. But when you stand at the front of a room and project them, you can't really see the detail. But when you can share those images on Zoom and everyone can see the detail themselves, you really get a completely different understanding of um, how that movement felt. And I think particularly when you're talking about activism, you really want to check out the crowd. You really want to see how those tactics were received 100 years ago. Mm-hmm. And you can see that much better um, when you've got the image full screen on the laptop in front of you instead of projected up at the distant end of a mm-hmm. room. Mm-hmm. I, I do agree. I think that the Zoom component of Smithsonian Associates has been a real opening for Smithsonian to use some of this technology in kind of some, you know, some cool ways. And, and I think the audience has really appreciated it. It's good to hear that you're doing some, some things specially you know, geared to what Zoom can and, uh, accomplish and, and kind of enable. Well, I wonder if you'd tell us a little bit about the background of the women's suffragist movement, in, especially in D.C., because it's got a very prominent role there. The suffrage movement wasn't based in D.C. for a long time. For most of the 19th century, it was based in New York. You know, the origin story is that it started at Seneca Falls. And you can make an argument that it actually started before then, but the suffragists themselves liked the Seneca Falls origin myth. So let's start there. Um, And then the National American Women's Suffrage Association, um, the big, well-funded national organization at the end of the the 19th century was based in New York City. And New York City was also a real focus um, for getting suffrage on a statewide level. They thought if they could turn New York then that would um, encourage a lot more members of Congress to support suffrage because New York at the time was the most populous state. And there wasn't that much focus in D.C. The federal amendment was introduced every year, but it was it never went anywhere. It was just kind of pro forma. And so when um, Alice Paul joined the movement, and this wasn't until 1910, 1911, um, she sort of wondered why the federal amendment didn't get more support, why there wasn't basically a lobbying arm of the suffrage movement here in Washington, the way every social movement has, you know, a government relations branch now here to make sure that the issue stays on the attention of federal legislators. Um, And so when she sort of proposed revitalizing the D.C. arm of the movement, the leaders are like, yeah, that's okay. Yeah, you can do that if you want. Here's $10. And here's a list of women who might be helpful. And if you don't spend all $10, please send us back the check. <laughs> and the list of women included several people who were in fact dead. So it was less helpful than it could have been. But from those in all spacious beginnings, Alice Paul really did revitalize the DC um, aim of the suffrage movement. And she started with this huge parade down Pennsylvania Avenue in 1913, which was the subject of my earlier book. And, you know, now those of us who live in D.C., there's there's a march so frequently on Pennsylvania Avenue that we just sort of consider it a traffic headache. Um, but the suffragists invented it. There has never been a civil rights march, this idea of bringing a political issue to the corridors of federal power, marching from the legislative branch of the Capitol to the executive branch of the White House. That had never been done before. And it, the march itself 
it got a lot of people interested in the movement who hadn't been interested before. It was a great fundraising tool. It got a ton of good press. But it also really was the, an announcement that the federal amendment was really back as a focus of the movement. There was this huge banner um, on a wagon that said, we demand a constitutional amendment enfranchising the women of this nation. Not, you know, we ask politely, not we hope and pray. We demand a constitutional amendment. And so the parade was a real tactical change for the movement. And in the seven years between that parade and when ratification finally passed um, all 36 necessary states in 1920, um, there was a real focus here in town. And so, you know, you see the images of the Black Lives Matter protests in Lafayette Square. You see, you know, the, the mayor approving the Black Lives Matter mural being painted down 16th Street. Um, you see people waving their signs where they hope the president can see them. All of these are tactics borrowed from the suffrage movement. Um, the suffragists invented picketing the White House. The suffragists insisted on taking the president's words and holding them in front of his house. Um, you know, the mayor could have painted Black Lives Matter on a different street. She chose 16th Street so that it would be in the face of the president. Um, and so... Uh, that just not a day goes by in contemporary activism where I don't see um, a tactic that was either invented by or perfected by the suffragists here in Washington. Mm-hmm. And hard for anyone, especially the president, to miss that. And and you mentioned um, you mentioned Greta uh, Greta Thunberg, uh, the environmental activist. Uh, maybe tell us a little bit about some of the other important kind of viral tactics that have been used by the suffragists that are still in use today, like painting a street. Yeah, and and viral messaging. Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, just think what the suffragists would have done with social media, uh, because they were Mm -hmm. really good with the tools they had 100 years ago. I mean, if you see those pictures of the National Women's Party members picketing the Wilson White House in 1917, they have banners that say really provocative things. And that is the 1917 equivalent of viral messaging, right? That, that banner wasn't just for the president. It wasn't for the people who stood there on the street corner. It was, it looked great in pictures. They chose, you know, fonts that were easy to read, that reproduced well in black and white, um, so that that would be picked up by newspapers, spread around the country, and their message would go viral uh, in a very deliberate, intentional way. Um, especially as World War I went on in 1917 and the pickets became less popular with the public, uh, they could, the women could have decided to play it safe. Um, They could have stopped the pickets altogether. They could have stuck with messages that were things like, we want the vote, you know, something that was um, pretty straightforward. But instead, they became more critical of President Wilson. They, um, uh, you know, called him Kaiser Wilson while we were at war with Germany. They leaned in to this message of holding his feet to the fire for his hypocrisy over supporting democracy abroad while thwarting it at home. And that was entirely, um, you know, the 1917 version of a tweet. It was short. It was easily reproduced. It was entirely quotable. Uh, it was shocking. Um, it was all of the things that social media is good at now. And um, you see contemporary uh, political movements using that kind of messaging. And there's a lot of hand-wringing over it, right? There's a lot of people longing for some nostalgic time when politics was civilized and people addressed each other with respect. And 
you know, those people are longing for a fantasy. There never was that time. <laughs> um, and it just, you know, used different media for the same tactics. <laughs> we are with Rebecca Roberts. Rebecca Roberts will be appearing at Smithsonian Associates coming up Tuesday, October 6th. Re- Rebecca Roberts and her co-writer Lucinda Robb have written the book, The Suffragist Playbook. Your guide to changing the world, Rebecca. What what did you learn about this movement that surprised you? I think how savvy these women were was continually surprising. Um, you know, the righteousness of their cause seems so obvious a hundred years later, and uh, it's hard to conceptualize why anybody would be against women voting. But these women had to understand their opposition in order to overcome it. And the opposition wasn't just all garden variety sexism. You know, it wasn't just the standard women are too stupid and fragile to handle the vote. Those people were never going to change their minds. It actually was the more subtle opposition that required these women to really be political superstars. And they really were. So um, there were industries that were against women voting because maybe they employed child labor. Um, you know, maybe they were the liquor industry. There were, um, you know, big money behind keeping women from voting because there were fears that women would thwart those business practices. There were religious reasons for women not to vote. Uh, The Catholic Church was very against it. But the most um, visible anti-suffrage voices were actually women themselves who made this argument that the private sphere was the women's sphere, that women should be very proud of their role in raising families and keeping the home and um, directing education and that wanting to be involved in the public sphere, the men's sphere, somehow undermined the importance of the private sphere and that they were denigrating their own value by asking for something that was within men's scope instead. And that's a much trickier thing to object to. That's a much trickier argument to make. And you see in certainly plenty of essays and petition drives and speeches, but also political cartoons were a big useful tactic for changing the image of suffragists. Uh, slogan, imagery, um, they had to take on opposition where it was and meet it where it was and change minds based on their own biases. And the other thing that's amazing to me is how the movement had to evolve over the 72 years it took from the Seneca Falls Convention to the ratification of the 19th Amendment. You know, when when Elizabeth Cady Stanton first added suffrage to the Declaration of Sentiments at Seneca Falls in 1848, it was ludicrous. It was like proposing that dogs could vote or children could vote. The other women there worried it would make them ridiculous. Um, So to go from that to it actually becoming the law of the land, you can bemoan how long it took, and it sure took longer than it should have. But the social changes that had to be wrought in order for it to happen are astounding. Um, and so I just was continually impressed with how the suffragists at every time period, in every place, found a message, worked it, um, found the right vehicle for delivering it, adapted to changing opposition, adapted to changing social mores. And, and I have to say, they were not perfect. It's important, I think, to recognize that these women were not, you know, saintly, perfect, uh, you know, once-in-a-lifetime leaders that um, should be held up as, as saints. They 
sometimes they took tactics that were shameful. Sometimes they took tactics that were racist. Um, sometimes they ignored voices within their own movement because of their own biases and, and short-sightedness. And uh, I actually find that liberating, the fact that these women weren't perfect. So it means that, you know, all of us who also aren't perfect, who are also slow to learn, who also make mistakes, that we can change the world too, you know? <laughs> That's good. I like that. I I I, I uh, put myself in that that imperfect category too. I'm st- I'm still trying. I'm still trying. <laughs> right. Well, your excellent book, uh, along with your co-author Lucinda Robb, the Suffragist Playbook: Your Guide to Changing the World, is really designed for young readers. So, tell us what advice that you would give to young and old, <laughs> and those of us older, <laughs> about how to share and apply the messages uh, that are important to us to reach our goals. So I think the most important thing I learned trying to craft the message of this book is just start somewhere. And I think that especially this summer, a lot of people have felt overwhelmed with the task at hand. Um, you know, how do we overcome centuries of systemic racism? How do we, um, you know, return our federal government to a place that people respect and trust? These are huge tasks and they feel like one person can't play a role in them. Um, But start somewhere. Maybe those aren't the tasks you take on right now. Maybe you get involved in getting a stop sign at the end of your street. Maybe you get involved in having a say in, um, you know, what your English teacher is assigning as required reading. It doesn't need to be massive, world-changing goals. Just find what you care about and start there. I think the only wrong answer is to not do anything at all. Rebecca Roberts, it's always so great to talk to you. Our audience loves hearing from you. Of course, you've been on the program before, but you'll be at Smithsonian Associates coming up here, October 6th, title of your presentation, and you'll be with Lucinda Robb, your co-author of the book, uh, How the Suffragist Invented Washington Activism. We really appreciate your time. Um, Again, we... we, uh, uh, wish you the very best, uh, the best to you and your family, and uh, hope you're doing well during uh, all of this uh, social distancing and quarantining and uh, everything else that's going on out there. But thanks so much for your generous time today, and uh, we, uh, we look forward to talking to you again sometime soon. Thank you, Paul. It's been a pleasure. My thanks to author and museum curator Rebecca Roberts. Rebecca Roberts and Lucinda Robb will be appearing at the Smithsonian Associates program entitled How the Suffragists Invented Washington Activism, October 6th via Zoom. We'll have more details at our website and at Smithsonian website, which you'll find all in the show notes. My thanks to the Smithsonian team for all their help in supporting the show with great Smithsonian guests and topics. My thanks to you, our wonderful Not Old Better Show audience. Please be safe, practice smart social distancing, and remember, let's talk about better. The Not Old Better Show. Thanks, everybody. Mm-hmm.